Hello and welcome to Radio Maria England and this is Just Life. And today I am joined on the program by Jim Hamilton. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. It's lovely to have you on the program. And tell me, where are you calling from at the moment? I'm calling from Northwest London near Queen's Park. Um, it's uh, it's uh, a, a damp and, and, and grey day, but I'm, I'm still sneezing with the, with the allergies. So uh, <laughs> we, the joys of spring. <laughs> yes, and the joys of, of Easter as well through Amen. the gloom, I, I imagine. And, um, and tell our listeners what, uh, what, what is the, that accent that we're hearing in your voice and, and perhaps in mine as well. <laughs> I don't think I didn't notice. Well, we, we, um, it's, a, it's an Austro-African voice. We come from the, the bottom end of Africa where um, um, in, in the old country where everyone is older and, and, and especially the land is very much older than, than everywhere else. Though the countries are, are very new. Yes. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, it's um, it has its problems, but it's it's a kind of place you, you that doesn't you you can't you can't get rid of it. Yeah, it sort of gets into your your blood, or you find it in your blood, and you can't yes. you can't get it out. Um, how long have you not been living in in South Africa? Well, funnily enough, I've I've not been living there for nearly half my life. Um, I came here in the in the uh, late nineties, and I I met this Irish girl, and we have two teenage children. Lovely. And um, what is it that you miss the most about South Africa? If you could put, or maybe let's not uh, make a hierarchy, just tell me one thing that you, you find that you, you miss. I'm, I, miss, I miss the family. The, the whole family is still there, for, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. Um, spread out between Johannesburg and Cape Town. And, um, um, you know, WhatsApp calls just don't really substitute for being there in person um I, I i i speak to my mother regularly but she would really like a visit so yeah let's let's hope we can make that happen sometime yes I, one of the things that i miss um from south africa is just the wide open spaces of the landscape oh, yes. you know you can go driving and you just see um rolling hills and um it's not something that you experience a lot here in england and i've lived here for I think six or seven years now um mm. and I, I must say apart from the people i do miss that a great deal and um today the one of the things that is going to feature in what you're going to be talking about is uh, the landscape of south africa but from a different angle um, maybe and you are an author and um, you have recently written a book um and you're going to be talking to us about the book tell us what the the name of this book is well, the, the book is called The Ironwood Stuff. Um, ironwood is a, a, a tree, a wild relative of the domestic olive tree, which grows wild in, in parts of South Africa. And it's, the, um, um, it's like a, a badge of office for the, for the maid's eye in, in, in my story. Okay. Yeah. And um, have you written any other books? Um, I've written a lot of short stories um, and uh, response to writing prompts. Um, they're on my subscribe star page. And, um, I, and I've been, I have been working on, on a sequel to the Ironwood stuff, 
mm-hmm. um, but that's um, that's stalled for a while. Um, it's going to need some substantial revision. Lovely. Okay. Well, I'm very interested to hear more about um, this book and um, and uh, sort of play into the the longing for that country that uh, we both <laughs> come from. And I'm going to hand over to you and, and let you talk about that a bit, um, Jim. Great stuff. Well, so hello, everybody. Um, as you know, I'm 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 Jim Hamilton. I I'm the author of the Ironwood Stuff. And I'm, I'm talking today about what went into the writing of the book. Um, and I'd like to share a few thoughts on the importance of, of social conservatives in general, Christians in particular, uh, for creating culture and how that might be done in the current year. <clears throat> um, as I said before, I grew up in South Africa, spent nearly, but I've spent nearly half my life in London, where I have a family. Um, my my background, uh, my degree was in earth sciences, and um, I have a master's in in paleoclimatology, which is a bit recondite for most people. Um, though I've worked most of my life as a as a number cruncher in various capacities, and I have um, a, a lot of personal interest in natural sciences, climate ecology, um, as well as um, my as well as my my interest in 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 fantasy and in in um, in Catholicism, <clears throat> so um, the the Ironwood stuff is a fantasy story set in Southern Africa instead of the usual European setting. Now, why would anyone do this? You might think, thanks to Tolkien and thousands of his literary followers, it seems almost wrong to have magical events and fantastical beings in any setting other than a northern European one with its deciduous forests and snow-capped mountains in the distance. Well, I encountered Tolkien for the first time aged 11 when I found a copy of The Hobbit in my local library, only to be told by my mother we already had it in our bookcase. It was the first place I'd ever seen dwarves and goblins and elves and trolls taken seriously instead of in books meant for children, like in Noddy or Billy God's Gruff or the Snow White movie. Now, at the same time, we used to go on holiday to a place about an hour's drive from where we lived in the Machalisberg range west of Pretoria. My father belonged to a club that had started as a World War II veterans club, though it was his father who was a World War II veteran, not himself. The the chalets and the clubhouse were built in African style. They were, the buildings were circular or elongated with circular ends like uh, traditional highland houses, and all the roofs were thatched. Some were built of the local grey igneous stone, most were plastered brick, and all was set deep in a, in a riverine or riparian forest. But the forest had never been bulldozed to make space for the buildings. Everything was laid out in between um, existing old growth trees with winding stone pathways between them. Where the pathway went downhill, there were, there were always wide, shallow steps paved, in, paved in, in dark slate. The forest was dominated by South African deciduous trees like mulberry, celtus species, 
which are known as stinkwoods because of their pungent bark, and wild olive trees, sometimes called ironwoods, which are evergreen. Now this forest was a haven of peace and adventure for me and my siblings growing up. There was always something new to discover every time we stayed there. Away from the main site on an isolated hill was a monument to those sappers who had died in North Africa and Italy, fighting against the Germans and Italians in World War II. To reach a monument, you followed a path, also paved in slate, that wound through the forest, deep and mysterious. In summertime, it would be shaded, which is a welcome break from the heat. And wintertime, pale sunlight would shine through the bare branches and trace outlines of, the, of, of trees on the, on the slate below. As I grew older and my interest in Tolkien matured, I started to have a feeling of the mythopoeic quality of images and places. Now, mythopoeia is a quality that evokes the feeling or the air of myth. It, it makes you think of epic tales, of stories half forgotten that, um, that exist, that are meant to be discovered sometime. <clears throat> you can see this quality of mythopoeia in moody pictures of Oxford, for example. But I could sense it in many places, or in certain pieces of music, some of which will be played in this program. And as a result, I really felt like this riparian forest environment was crying out for elves who would live in harmony with the forest and would guard it against destruction and exploitation by their own ingenuity and strength of arms. The stonework of the monument and the clubhouse also strongly evoked medieval building styles. It looked like a castle or a, or a great house whether accidentally or, or on purpose, I, I could never tell. <clears throat> so what would these elves look like? The Snow White Elves of the Tolkien Legendarium just wouldn't do. Southern Africa might be outside the tropics and over a thousand meters above sea level, but it can still be hot enough in the summertime that during the heat of the day, you need to rest in the shade. So I imagined elves quite different from the archetype, but still recognizable as such. And I dubbed them Sun Elves. I imagined them being coffee-colored, like some um, Afrikaner people in South Africa today, today, with sandy or brown or black hair bleached yellow by the sun and eyes that were hazel or green. They would be active in the dark or early morning and evening and build houses designed to be cool in summer and warm in winter with courtyards and, and quiet fountains. Like ancient Egyptians, they would write with brushes on papyrus and create monuments or artifacts with arts now forgotten, like the mysterious schist discs still found in Egypt, which seem to have been molded from liquid stone. As for the magic, not the quote marks, associated with them, this would not be magic as we know it. The elves would be good people, largely free from the death and corruption that marked the younger species of men. I wrote a longest blog post about this, Magic Systems and the Problem of Evil, where I pondered how you could be granted abilities that seem to be magical without incurring corruption yourself. I won't go into the details here, but suffice to say, I thought the key was to cultivate detachment as a discipline. If you fail to maintain that detachment, your ability would, would attenuate and could even be lost. And from that basis, I came up with several different disciplines, which, which I have dimly heard rumors of 
um, in, in people down the ages, but would be more or less routine to these elves. One of those would be animal sympathy, which is the ability to, to sympathize, to think with and feel with other species to the extent that you can communicate with them and even control them to some degree. So now I had the basis of a story. What if someone raised as or thinking of himself as human showed such great promise in animal sympathy that the elves or the Eladi, as the sun elves call themselves, decided to train him as a practitioner of the art, an animal magus. And that is the beginning of the ironwood stuff. <clears throat> now I know there are some who bristle at the thought of anything remotely resembling magic being shown in a positive light. But I take pains to show the difference between these natural abilities or arts as you might call them and real magic which is practiced by the evil creatures. My story features goblins or orcs as well but I've given them a name that sounds harsh and cruel drawn from the phonology of at least three South African languages. I've called them Khabani which I thought sounded both alien and cruel. It's not meant to have any cognate in any existing language however. So what is your Irish stuff about? It's about a young scribe, a lawman, if you will, named Thomas, who's caught up in the invasion of his homeland by these same orcs or Khabani. Captured and destined to be sold as a slave, he is rescued by the elves or Eladi, who recruit him and many other humans to fight against the invaders. Injured in a skirmish and unable to fight, he becomes an apprentice to an animal magus. In time, the Eladi capture a Khaban leader, Thomas's master, as an animal magus, is called on to assist in the Khaban's interrogation, but is affected by an evil spirit infesting the monster. As Thomas's studies and his prospects unravel, he joins a mission to the far south of the world, where there are other Elidi living free who might be able to help. It is on this mission that Thomas makes discoveries about himself and the world he lives in that show he is much more important than he could have dreamed. In writing this story, I wanted a distinctive African or, or specifically South African flavor. Apart from the landscapes and the climate, I've given the Elidi quachas to ride on instead of horses. Although I doubt the original quacha, which went extinct in colonial times, would have made decent mounts. Just a, a quick side note, the, <clears throat> the, the quacha was a, a species of zebra which had stripes only on its on its forequarters and its um, and its head and neck, the rest of it was uh, was a dun brown color like a like a horse. I thought that would be suitable for these sun elves. <clears throat> and the Eladi of the far south of the world have elephant cavalry. I've often resented the fact that Tolkien gave the bad guys elephants. They're far too impressive to be in the service of evil. I've often felt that we underestimate the wonder of what's around us. And if you use known things in original ways, it can color your whole life with wonder, making the mundane extraordinary, even epic. Uh, there's a, uh, a quote from, from our, our great master Tolkien who, who said that the green earth is, is a wonderful matter of myth, though you walk it under the light of the sun. Now, I mentioned the mythopoeic quality of certain images or pieces of music. One of the earliest such songs I remember from the early 1980s is called Digging for Some Words by Johnny Clegg. 
Now, Johnny Clegg was a white singer-songwriter who immersed himself in Zulu culture, creating several albums which are massive hits in South Africa. Singing in both English and Zulu, he blended a poetic gift similar to that of Paul Simon with the driving rhythms of the Muscandi style of Zulu music. One song of his that, to me, just oozes myth appear is called Digging for Some Words. Here you have lyrics written from an African heart with a flavor of Haggard and Kipling expressed in a tune evoking a story told around a campfire in the dark while jackals laugh in the distance and owls moan in the trees. I've always loved the chorus. It goes, wanderers and nomads have gone to see their chieftains. Will this be the end of the rain and the birds? Who will send an emissary to speak to the seasons? For the ravens and the crows already soak up the sky. Wanderers and nomads have gone to see their chieftains. Will this be the end of the rain and the birds? Who can send an emissary to speak to the seasons? For the ravens and the crows already soak up the skies. I'm digging for some words beneath the stones in Zimbabwe. I'm searching for a drum song in the jungles of Zaire. I'm hoping for the bread boom in the mountains of Malawi. Looking for the lion of Ethiopia. Settling dusk is darkened by the bark of the baboons. The frogs and the owls no longer call to the moon. The warlords have gathered who smoke his from teeth of chrome. And the baobab trembles in the boiling blood long. Fireplace is broken and the grinding stone too. It's million pieces flung across the plains of Africa. Each dusty fragment, a seed from which grows the memory of a death that only you and I will know. Wanderers and nomads have come to see their chieftains. Will this be the end of the rain and the birds? Who can send an emissary to speak to the seasons? For the ravens and the crows already soak up the skies. Seven seasoned soldiers have been summoned from Saigon. A craven walkie-talkie puts their bloodshot armor on. Some drink beer, milk, some drinking Kikola. Sheepdogs live in Otaniqua, gun dogs in Angola. Flames lick the corners of each hungry horseman's smile. They have locusts in their scabbards and deserts in their eyes. Passing through the air, they leave a sea of fetid rumors as they ride upon the skyline on a secret trail of lies. 
Now, admittedly, when I first started writing, I was unemployed. And in my touching naivety, I thought that writing a book that sold well would earn me a bit of cash, if not provide an income. How little I knew. Though friends and family loved the story, and one of them was a professional journalist, I just could not get agents or agencies interested. Months of heartbreak ensued, and then I became a father, so my dreams of becoming an author seemed to vanish. But once I was in a decent job again, the world of the Ironwood stuff beckoned me back. I would read an extract of it and suddenly be back in that world, and I knew I had to, be, I had to go back to it. So over the course of, uh, of another few years, I rewrote large chunks of it, hoping to make it something better. Then came another long spell of unemployment, but this time I didn't need an agent. Enter Amazon Kindle Desktop Publishing. I self-published the book on the thinnest of shoestrings, and it remains there to this day, free on Amazon Prime. I've had some wonderful reviews on Goodreads, if you'd like to see what other people thought of it. Um, now, the initial drive to write the story had always been there. But like a lot of people with creative impulses, I suffer imposter syndrome in a big way. When I first thought of doing it, a good friend of mine some 20 years ago listened to my doubts and my, and my absolute loathing of trying to market myself as an IT guy. And she said to me, how loud does your heart have to shout at you? I remember I was on my way to an interview, I think, unsuccessful, as usual. And although at the time I tried to come up with a snappy reply, I couldn't. She knew better than I did. That friend was a lady called Sarah de Nordwell, and I've known her since 2001. She runs courses for creative people to, to help them find the, the hidden spring to awaken their creativity under grace and to take their creative projects to the finish line. She does this to help create a, create a Christian-grounded culture. At the, at the time I was first thinking of writing, she was just starting to realize her dream of creating a bard school inspired by the ancient bards of Ireland, who were able to speak to all classes of society and who could speak the truth to the king without fear. She has a, a gift of bringing poetry out of anybody and artistry out of all sorts of people. And she and the fellowship of the people that gathered around her were crucial in getting me going. Um, I, I told her I'd give her a, a shameless plug 
and um, so I'll, I'll give details at the at the end of this of this talk. Um, and um, uh, as it happens, her next course is starting this Friday, the fourteenth. So just remember that. <laughs> um, so again, why is this important? Now this is crucial. I don't need to tell you that we now live in clown world, where the definition of woman eludes politicians and commentators alike. And you have absolute freedom of speech, up to and including calls for violence, as long as your opinions are correct. This has happened because for three generations, popular culture has been hedonistic and nihilistic at the same time. It's an extremely toxic combination, spawning political movements focused on the affirmation of the most unhappy individuals at the expense of everything else, all in the name of justice. The state of affairs has to change, but politics is downstream of culture, and culture is founded on cultus, or a belief system with its attendant practicalities. If we're going to change our politics, we, have, we as Christians have to create culture. To do that, we desperately need artists. We need filmmakers, authors and musicians, but also painters, sculptors and poets. We need people who are willing to create, not to feed their egos or to advance a cause, but because their hearts are captivated by goodness, truth and beauty. And they're willing to put in the time for no immediate reward to learn their craft and hone their skills with others who share their vision. <clears throat> it might not have escaped our audience that modern movies and books are generally awful. The reason is simple. As in any totalitarian state, the writers have been chosen for their loyalty to the cause rather than their ability to spin a good yarn. As a result, we have stories where, for example, dainty little female soldiers are be beating up hulking men twice their, twice their weight, where heroes are no longer heroic, but morally ambiguous and riddled with self-doubt, and where villains are no longer evil, just misunderstood. It's a great flattening of the moral universe, and it's dreadful. It makes for very boring, uninspiring stories. And that's the key. It is uninspiring. So that's the why of Christian, and particularly Catholic creativity. <clears throat> there are ways and means of how. You are the who. The when is right now. Um, just one word of warning. Please take time to hone your skills. If you're a writer, please make sure your spelling is right and you know rules of grammar and sentences. That's been the bane of indie publishing to me, seeing awful howlers in otherwise great stories. And if you're a painter or sculptor, take the time to refine your skills as well. <clears throat> in the modern dystopian landscape of culture, however, there are still sparks of brilliance. One such gem I found was Mike Oldfield's Music of the Spheres. It's an orchestral album, and in my humble opinion, he, could, he should have gone classical a long time ago. I first heard an extract from the album while driving home from work in the rain one day, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I rushed out to buy the CD, which probably dates it, and listened to it avidly. The music had all the ethereal charm of Oldfield's old early output, but with none of the frightening insanity. At the time, I had been wondering about a backstory for the world of the Ironwood stuff. And after listening to the music of the spheres, I sat down and wrote out the entire foundational myth of my, fan of my fantasy world in one long sitting, all of 30 to 40 minutes. So we're going to listen to the finale to music of the spheres, Musica Universalis.
listening to Rada Maria, and that was Musica Universalis uh, by Mike Oldfield. 
And we've had um, on this program of Just Life, um, Jim Hamilton, who's been speaking to us about the book that he has written called The Ironwood Staff. And, um, and it is an epic based in Southern Africa and very much in, inspired by um, J.R. Tolkien's idea of creating a mythology that um, embodies the, the spirit of a place. Um, did I describe that more or less well? Yes, you yeah. described okay. very well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a, a, an avid fan of all the things that you've been speaking about. Um, Excellent. The music that you've been choosing, the although uh, Mike Oldfield is not someone I'm familiar with, but I, I've loved what I've listened to. And Johnny Clegg, I grew up listening to his records. And, yes. Um, so it's been a real pleasure. And I was, I was very interested by your when you started talking about the um myth mythopia mythopia how do you pronounce that mythopia yes mythopia. is that um is that actually and this isn't a lie just last night i was reading this poem by jr Tolkien, which i That's think where it comes from. is by that name yes yeah so i was at a dinner yes. party with some friends and um um the way that we came across it was that um we were listening to Pink Floyd and somebody had said that the wow. the album cover of of Dark Side of the Moon with the I think it's Dark Side of the Moon with the um the prism and the yes. light going through it was inspired by by that poem of Tolkien's. And so then we pulled up the poem and, and we read it oh, um, wow. together. Now so, that is synchronicity for yes, you. Yes, it is, isn't it? Um so tell I'd love to hear about how you you came across that poem and um, how it influenced you. Oh, that, um, <laughs> funny enough, the first time I ever read that poem, I was actually um, in conversation with a whole bunch of other people. Um, we were at a, um, a house sit. This was in my early 20s, and um, I came across this book, and, um, and I, I read, the, I read his, most of his essay on fairy stories, and then the the poem that came after it. This, this was the first time I ever realized that Tolkien was actually Christian, in fact, Catholic. And it was, and to me, it was just mind blowing. I was, I was so delighted. Um, uh, and since then, I've I've come to appreciate his idea of um, the creativity of of individuals being. Um, Splintered, reflect, splintered refractions of the one true light. Mm -hmm. um, each person has um, a um, a background and a soul and a personality filtered through their experiences of suffering and joy and and um, and everything that goes to make them up, um, which produces which would produce a unique color of of the original of the original white light of god and um and i just love that image um and it's why it's why creativity can never be a, a zero sum game if you are successful in your endeavors if you manage to make a bit of money and, and if people and if you're if what you do has an impact then um you are you, there's no way you can possibly take um, success away from somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, it is, um, 
is very much a case of the more the merrier. Yeah. And I think it's an, an incredibly freeing uh, perspective, right? Because you're, there's this limited, um, uh, sorry, there's this unlimited amount of um, expression that you can have of the truth. Yes. Know, that splintered li light. And it's not um, about the, because the, the poem was a response to a notion that, that um, Tolkien found ab abhorrent in, 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 in something that Lewis had said before his conversion. Yes. Of, um, that myths were um, lies breathed through silver. Yes, and he thought that was just very silly. You know that it it um, uh, it's not about disguising a, a lie. It's about bringing out a new aspect of the truth. Yes, um, definitely. And that's infinite. You know, the, um, we have we have Lynette on um, on the line. Hello, Lynette. Tim, hello. Hi, you're you're Hi. on air, and oh, I Jim's am. Good listening morning. to you. <laughs> Um, good, good morning. Good morning. Um, Jim and Tim. Have I got that right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, happy Easter, first of all. Happy Easter to you. Yes, happy Easter. Um, yeah, it's rainy here. I'm just north of Cambridge as well. So, <laughs> rainy and grey. Um, yes. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, Jim, if I may, whether uh, you have found... I, I can't remember how long you said you'd been in the UK, but whether you've found... Any interesting places such as, I don't know, Epping Forest or wild places here, not so far from where you live, that you can spend time in now to soak up that environment? And are there any, are there any stories um, where, uh, arising from you spending time in wild places here? Uh, um, I, I, I haven't actually um, been to many wild places here, but um, I, I know the, the Lake District um, reasonably well. I've been there um, several times a, 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 long, a long time ago. Um, mm. But at the moment, the um, um, somewhere that um, speaks to me a lot is uh, the Pergola in Hampstead Heath. Um, which is it, it used to be a, a, a walkway or promenade for the for the big house behind it, which belonged to Lord Leverhulme, the founder of um, Unilever, mm. um, and it's it passed into into ownership of of um, of the City of London um, some time ago, and they've and they smartened it up and made it safe for for people to walk on and the. This place is is remarkable for its um, because it, it's a it's a, a walkway built high up above the above the ground, and you can look out over the forest. Um, you know, Hampstead oh, Heath wow. is is the is the last remnant of the great forest of Middlesex, and yeah. um, although it, there are times that it can be quite crowded, you wouldn't know it because the trees are just so thick. Um, and the um, the pergola itself is is partly roofed over by by wooden frames, and there are creepers everywhere. And it's and at the moment it's just coated in blossom. It is really beautiful. Cool, um, that sounds great. Yes, um, and it, can people with limited mobility go there? Is it a place where people with limited mobility can go? Good question. Um, yes. Good. But oh, you have, it sounds but, intoxicating visually <laughs> and other sen senses as well, it's, and the history. It sounds good. Yes, yeah. um, it, 
it, it, uh, you can take wheelchairs. In fact, I saw someone in a motorized wheelchair there just yesterday, um, not in the pergola itself, but in the heath. Um, you might have to walk to the far end along the road um, and then and then come in on a level um, because the, the 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 end that we usually go in is is a spiral staircase, <laughs> and ah, um, right. so um, you you need to go past the old house which has been turned into luxury flats now, and take a left and 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 follow the 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 dirt road down to the down to the entrance to the the um, what's it called the hill garden. Oh, it all sounds good. I haven't been in that area for years. But it's fascinating because my roots are Middlesex. So, um, oh. yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it's where I was born. There we go. So, wow. um, I, and I, so just the second bit of my question is, might your time in, in places like that um, inform some new writing? Um. Not so far. Um, right, okay. The the new the what I've um, the the short stories and the and the um, um, the inspirations I've been getting lately have been uh, for um, um, urban fantasy. Um, I don't know if you know about a a, a movie called Bright, starring no. Will Smith. It um, um, it it. It, it it was a bit of a of a box office of well it wasn't it wasn't in theaters it was Netflix it was a bit of a flop but um, it had um, elves and humans and 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 orcs in a modern day Los Angeles which I found absolutely fascinating and and um, hmm. um, and how do I've you spell the a, title of the film I'm sorry how do you spell oh, the name of the film it's just bright B R I G H T ah oh, thank you okay. It's on. It's on Netflix. Hmm. Um, that that sounds wonderful. And just one more little brightness question, if I may. You, I heard part of what you were saying about the um, everybody is a uh, is a fragment or a diffraction of the one true light. I think yes. that's what you said. Whose yeah. quote is that? I'm um, I'm pretty sure it comes from Tolkien himself. Wow. Yeah, wow. so the, the poem we were talking about um, is uh, Mythopia, and you can find it on the internet. That's okay. Yeah. Well, there's a little there's a little folk duo who's named themselves after that around here, around these parts. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, so, um, listen, wonderful. Thank you. I've got more questions, but um, somebody else needs to turn. Thank you. <laughs> you can give us one more, Lynette, if you want. Oh. Well, um, I've met Sarah de Nordwall through Radio Maria, and <laughs> she's a bit of a find. So there's another plug for Sarah, and I know mm. you're going to give some more information at the end. Yes, and she's I, plastic. I just wa- I wondered if you've come across the author Susanna Clark, um, an English author. She's uh, one of her latest books is called Piranesi, um, and I think in Susanna's writings, I think you'll find something of the of magic in the way that you like it to be able to be heard and sounded and talked about the positive the light the light side of magic yeah. um the name does there. sound vaguely familiar yeah she's she's lovely she's lovely I met, I'm, yeah i met i met her she used to live here in cambridge so okay, okay. thank you Lynette. Uh, yeah. thank you yeah. bye. Bye. bye thank you God bless. Bye. Um, bye. 
so it would be a good chance for us to talk about um, this course that you that you've been on with with um, um, Sarah and uh, what was it that I imagine that you probably had some kind of experience of having a blockage which then became unblocked or um, I don't want to put words or ideas into into your mouth, but tell us uh, right. sort of how it how it progressed and um, and what you you found so profound about it. Well, um, when um, when it, I, when I first met her, when I, when I first started attending courses that uh, she was facilitating, it was it wasn't as it's as it's done now. She was um, <clears throat> she was still finding her way, um, and she would um, gather together people who were. Who um, who had a, an idea of, of writing um, stories or poems or plays? Especially, there were there are a few people who are interested in drama, and um, um, she would just give them a prompt and um, see what they came up with. But the the most important part of those um, meetings wasn't so much what she said as the opportunity you had afterwards to share. What you had done with other people, um, to to share what you have done and then get positive affirmation, is absolutely priceless when you're when your um, when your your uh, when your gift is just uh, a, a sprouting seedling, um, and it's um, um, and she facilitates that very well. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> she's. Um, Nowadays, she's she's a lot more professional about it. She um, she's got a website called sarahdenordwell.com. Um, that's Sarah de Nordwell with N O R D W A L L, and um, <clears throat> she even offers a she even offers a, a twenty minute Zoom call um, to to see if you if you'd be if this kind of course would be right for you. And, mm-hmm. and like I say, she's starting a new course just this Friday. So, so is the course something that you would have to go to London for or some other place? Um, no, I think she, I think it's offered on, um, it, it, it can be in person, but it can be offered online as well. Okay. And either, and I think you'd be able to, to, to do it uh, remotely and in person and individually if you wanted mm-hmm. to. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm and it's, it's her it's her work now, you know, source of of um, of, of income. So, with the I I saw her for the first time at this Bishop Barron conference that um, yes. I think you made the connection with with Rada Maria through that same conference. Yes, and, I um, there. She she recited a poem that she had um, that she presented in Parliament. And she had written it 45 minutes before she had to present yes. it. <laughs> and it was brilliant. It was really, yes. really brilliant. The container of abandoned minds. That's yes. just wonderful. And um, and she really does embody that uh, charism, if I can call it that, of of the Bard school, you know, of speaking yes. truth um, through these these art forms, which it's, it is very inspiring, very beautiful. Yes, um, and being able to satirize anybody and anything mm. um, which is and um, she her, her poems can have um, unexpected laugh out loud moments in them as well <laughs> yeah I want to ask you a little bit about um, some of the o- other authors that have influenced you but 
Um, before we do that, I thought it might be a good idea for us to play your next song before we, we okay. run out of time. Um, and so this one is from The Lord of the Rings, and um, it's from The Breaking of the Fellowship. So we'll just play a bit of that. you don't know what music is playing right now then you've probably been living in a hole for a long time <laughs> <laughs> that was um from the lord of the rings the breaking of the fellowship and uh, very appropriate music for today's uh, program of just life where we've been speaking to um, and hearing from jim hamilton and his uh, endeavor to write a book about the um that that gives a mythological reading of um, Southern Africa. That's um, a really amazing uh, project to, to, to undertake and something very much in the Tolkienian um, school of thought. And I, I wanted to ask you before we close um, to tell us a little bit about uh, an, any other authors that have inspired you, Jim. Um, yeah, the um, um, one one uh, one author that has inspired me a lot has been um, called. Uh, his name is John C. Wright. Um, he has written a, a series of books called the Moth and Cobweb series, which is based on the on the uh, 
Arthurian cycle, and it's um, I, and he's also Catholic, and it, it is a, a an absolute delight to read these things, and and amazingly enough, he's married to another um, writer, uh, Jaggy Lamplighter, and um, and they produce some wonderful things together. But for um, there's a I did read a, a South African author called Evan Winter. Um, his um, his first book, The Rage of Dragons, um, was um, um, was very um, 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 uh, stark and and strangely um, beautiful to me. I'll just, I'll just read from the review I I had on my blog. It says. Uh, this world is a harsh one where bloody war has been waged for generations. The magic in this world is realistic in that it comes with a terrible price, which becomes horribly apparent as the story wears on. The plot is a revenge tale where a son embarks on a quest to avenge his father, become a ch becoming a champion of his people and of his social caste. In the process, the story asks very important questions about the border between justice and vengeance and how each can diminish the other. And also, what price do you pay for vengeance? The protagonist is willing to go all the way, and Winter has no problem showing the high price of that. It's quite a savage tale, and you slowly come to realize there are no good guys, though there are good individuals, especially the love interest. Um, um, I had the idea that, just, that justice is vengeance civilized and depersonalized. We seem to have lost sight of that idea. Um, <clears throat> in favor of rehabilitation, which is much kinder. Hmm. But in a society like the one in this book, justice simply does not apply across caste boundaries. To seek restitution, it becomes necessary to go outside the law, the idea of the rule of law as opposed to the rule of monarchs, where even the greatest are subject to it, is one of the crowning glories of Western civilization and of the Anglophone world in particular. The kings of England were famously disposable. Um, another Good point is the nature of magic. In my, in my opinion, ma magic in most fantasy, especially the Dungeons and Dragons franchise, is far too cheap. All our folklore, the accumulated wisdom of generations, places a truly awful price on esoteric powers that place one outside the reach of the mundane. Um, historically, the ultimate act of magic was the mass, where God became supernatural food for deserving humans, and in that case, the price had already been paid by God himself. That was that was my thought on his um, on his book. Evan went to the Rage of Dragons. That is uh, definitely a profound note for us to uh, close on. And I just want to thank you so much, uh, Jim, for for today. And um, just thank to you. remind our listeners of the name of your book, which is The Ironwood Staff, and it's available on Amazon, on Amazon um, yes. as a on Amazon. Prime is a free download, is that right? Um, if you're on Amazon Prime, there's a free download, yes. Yeah, great. But do support um, artists like Jim. Um, we need good, Christian, wholesome art. And um, it's been a pleasure, Jim. God great bless stuff. you. Thank and you so much. Keep up the good work. God bless. God bless.